One of today's snazzy sponsors is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. Move, manage, and secure Active Directory, Office 365, and much more. Visit quest.com slash datanotspod to find out more. Quest.com slash datanotspod. In the crowded SD-WAN market, don't overlook Open Systems, a packet pusher's sponsor. Open Systems brings security, automation, and expert management to let you focus on other aspects of your network. Get visibility, flexibility, and control combined with performance, simplicity, and security with SD-WAN from Open Systems. To find out more, go to www.open-systems.com slash packet pushers. If you do, you can get a free beanie and Gartner report on the economics of SD-WAN. That's www.open-systems.com slash packet pushers. If you operate an IT environment where some of your resources live in AWS and some live on-premises, you've had to face the hybrid cloud DNS problem. Well, what problem is that? The Route 53 service isn't a name server like you're used to. Shenanigans everywhere! But AWS has enhanced Route 53 to make hybrid cloud DNS easier for enterprises to deal with. Today, the Datanauts help you understand integrating the Route 53 resolver with the rest of your DNS environment. I am Ethan Banks, and with me is Chris Wall. We joined my networking transporter with his virtualization rocket to make a spaceship exploring the ever-changing infrastructure universe together as the Datanauts. And since 2015, Datanauts has been a part of the Packet Pushers Network of Podcasts for information technology professionals, and you can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. Guiding our rocket today is Matt Adderjand. Matt, did I pronounce that right? Adderjand, is that about right? Yeah, it's about right. It's Adorjan. Ador- no, so it wasn't right. It was wrong. Well, Try again. <laughs> you sounded it out, though, which is good. Most people say a Jordan. So, Matt, welcome to the Data Nuts podcast. And in a sentence or two, would you please introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. I'm currently uh, working at a hedge fund in Chicago called Balyozny Asset Management, currently leading the cloud engineering group here. My spare time, though, I enjoy reading and writing about all things cloud, which kind of is where this whole interest and obsession with Route 53 and other DNS services in the cloud came from. Previously, worked at companies like PwC, McDonald's Corporate, doing similar um, IT or cloud architecture focused roles. So kind of bring some enterprise experience into the DNS conversation. Cool. Now, Matt, we're, uh, I mentioned Route 53, and we're definitely going to be talking about that stuff as the show goes on. But before that, I wanted to meet you and talk about your cloudping.co project a little bit. And before we even get to that, I noticed you've got five AWS certs. What's your take on all of that? Was that, was that worth it to you? Yeah, so this is a good question that I get asked a lot. I would say, yes, it's worth it. And I think it depends who you ask, the reasons why, I mean, what the arguments are. So, I mean, your standard answer is going to be, It does help you stand out amongst other candidates when you're looking at different roles, especially as you get to the professional and specialty level certifications. The subject matter is a lot more difficult and it requires hands-on or real world experience versus, you know, you might not be able, or you might be able to pass on an associate exam with just some book study and maybe a couple hands-on days with the console, whereas the professional and specialty, you have to really get down in the weeds. Now, my answer is slightly different from that. I just love learning. I like knowing the nuances of all the different services. You know, there's so many different pieces of uh, functionality, different quirks in each of the services, the nooks and crannies, as I like to call them. You don't really get exposed to that stuff as you just start kind of going through a service in the console or maybe setting it up once or twice. You know, hands-on experience is really important. So knowing the nooks and crannies plus your hands-on experience kind of brings you into the real world of being able to be a really effective cloud practitioner. And then also just having the goal at the end of passing the cert kind of helps me stay motivated to keep digging into each service. Um, And it kind of gives a roadmap for learning. Yeah, your take, again, you just love to learn, which is driving that. And then, right, it's not all about the cert, but the cert is a motivator to keep you getting through the course of study. Exactly. Yep. I got to say, all this talk about nooks and crannies, though, has me really craving an English muffin. But but that's okay. (laughs) I can't deliver that over a podcast. I wish. Not yet. 
Uh, but I want to dig into your job title, Matt. So cloud engineering manager, is this something where you kind of were an individual contributor and you've moved forward to a more senior position or do you have a team and responsibilities for what they're doing or kind of help me break that down a bit? Sure. So I've worked at Baliozny or BAM as we call it for about two years now. I started off just by myself as the sole cloud engineer um, amongst a larger infrastructure group, you know, where there's more of traditional infrastructure at play. All the way till now, where it's two years later, we have built up the cloud practice. We have a lot more applications and users on the cloud, now leading a small team as we deliver these solutions across the firm. So my role specifically is looking at things like strategy and architecture, working with teams that aren't familiar with the cloud across the firm, looking at their current workloads. You know, do we lift and shift maybe? Can we re-architect to make something cloud native? And then the other part is I really get to spend a lot of time still doing hands-on and technical work, which is really important to me. So I'm able to, you know, write out the Terraform scripts, you know, deploy the infrastructure as code, things like that for the, for the different solutions that I'm helping to architect. I mean, I even participate equally in our on-call rotation um, with the other guys on my team. So I try and stay oh, wow. involved. Yeah, sounds like you get the best of, well... I don't know about the on-call on could be cool, but it sounds like you get the best of both worlds, you know, still hands-on in the, as you say, the nooks and crannies and the nitty-gritty, but also kind of forging ahead to help those that are coming along in that journey with you uh, reach their goals, too. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Matt, we talk on Data Nuts about breaking down IT silos. It's been one of our themes since the beginning. In your mind, what's the role of traditional silos, networking, security, virtualization, storage, et cetera? What's the role of those traditional silos in, in the cloud era? Are those roles converging? Yeah, definitely. You know, over my, my time uh, in, in the working world, uh, as I'll call it, you know, I've seen time and time again so far, you know, siloed IT groups that are acting purely as order takers, but don't get involved really in the why of the solutions they're delivering. It really slows things down and it causes teams to go around them, you know, effectively creating shadow IT. I think IT teams now need to convert. They are converting more and more to full stack infrastructure engineers. I think it's really made possible, though, because of the heavy lifting that the cloud providers like AWS, Azure, GCP do for us, right? We're not racking and stacking, worrying about PDUs and power distribution. You know, we're not doing any of that. We're just working with our end users to understand their business needs, helping them deliver solutions, and then helping them and the business as a whole. There's definitely still areas of specialty, but I don't want to call them silos. You know, overall, the cloud puts everything at everyone's fingertips, and you can do a lot more with a lot less, which I think leaves more time for innovation in the future. Yeah, I remember uh, working in a, a VAR. There was these, you know, one, two, three individuals that could do a bin file for a VMAX, and it was this big thing. And getting your hands on that was practically impossible because, you know, there's not a whole lot of opportunities to work with those technologies. But you're right, with the cloud, it's all kind of right there. You can jump in at any level and start digging into just about any service or technology you can think of. So everybody can kind of flex their, their tech muscles a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also want to talk about, you have this side project, uh, cloudping.co. You know, like, help us introduce the world to this, the 10,000-foot view of what it is, why you made it, and kind of go into the details there a bit. Sure. So CloudPing, uh, it's a service that basically runs in each AWS region and pings all the other regions. It stores all of that data into a DynamoDB table and presents it in a UI. You know, I started this out as a combination of both trying to solve a specific problem, but also as a little bit of fun and learning. So as I was doing consulting, I was seeing a definite need for you know, global firms asking, all right, we have these DR requirements for different regions, but we also want to understand the latency between these different regions. You know, this obviously isn't meant to be a prescriptive latency measure uh, measurement service, but it is meant to give you an idea of, you know, these two regions are probably closest together. Let's dive in and do some additional testing. So that was kind of the, the career or work uh, reason around it. And then, you know, it's a fun project because I got to dive into serverless, API gateway, S3, Node.js, a couple other platforms in AWS that I'd only dabbled with before as an infrastructure engineer, but had, you know, not really gone on the application side too much in depth. So this gave me that opportunity. Ooh, it sounds like you got into a lot of stuff there. Can you give us uh, more of a peek behind the curtains then? You mentioned a lot of the components, DynamoDB, you're running something, I don't know if it's EC2, or what services that you're running in each of the different regions, and you just said Node.js, et cetera. C can you talk more about the architecture? 
Yeah, sure. So the back end right now uh, is Lambda uh, in each region. So basically every six hours, a Lambda function is scheduled to start up. It takes in a list of all the other regions. It pings out to those other regions using a TCP Python library, essentially. And then it writes all that data back into DynamoDB, where the data is then stored. The front end is an S3 bucket hosting static JavaScript. You know, one of the benefits of S3 is being able to host static sites without having to run a server. So that static JavaScript pulls back out data from that DynamoDB database and presents it to users in a nice UI. And then the API layer is an API gateway combined with another Lambda function that's actually doing the pulls from DynamoDB. The legacy backend, though, is kind of interesting because when I started this, there were a bunch of regions that didn't have Lambda. So in that case, I would create EC2 instances in those regions, and I would have a Lambda in other regions that was responsible for turning those EC2 instances on, letting them do their ping, writing to DynamoDB, and then turning them off again. So that was kind of like an interesting way to approach it when Lambda wasn't available across the board. You mentioned an API there. So the way I consume cloudping.co would just be like any user. I go to the URL, cloudping.co, and I presented with... Uh, the matrix. I see all of the different regions in that matrix, and it gives me the numbers, the latency between uh, each of those areas. Now, that's presented to me over the API? Is that Did I understand that correct. right? Correct. Yes, correct. Every time you load that page, it's making an API call out to this API gateway and Lambda stack, and then returning the JSON, which is then formatted by the JavaScript uh, single-page app that's running. So does that mean if I wanted to be able to consume cloudping.co metrics um, from some other service, I could do that in theory if you, if you publish the API? Yes, in theory, you could do that right now. The limitation around the API right now is it's very basic, and it was designed purely around the needs of getting the data for the front end. So in the future, right, one of the things, which we'll get to some roadmap in a second, one of the things I want to do is make the API more generic so it can be consumed by other services, um, whether that's third party or myself for other projects, things like that. So what's it cost to run this thing? Uh, it's about $10 per month right now. The, the Lambda cost, the API gateway cost uh, is very low, maybe a dollar or two a month. Uh, most of the cost comes from the DynamoDB table uh, where I'm actually storing the historical data, all the different aggregates and things that I do. So that's the majority of the $10 a month, but it's still really cheap. Where do you think you'll take CloudPing next? I mean, I know you've mentioned that creating an API out of what you have right now between the front end and the back end for others to consume is what you're thinking about, but any other places you're kind of diving in or are you looking for devs to help accomplish certain goals, something like that? Sure, so a couple of the things that are kind of on my radar for next steps, I really want to move away uh, from averages towards more of a percentile method. Um, you know, I want to show more of a distribution, look more, more deeply at the data, do a little bit more aggregation on it. I want to put uh, functionality around drilling into the different relationships, you know, presenting graphs and charts and things like that. So you can look back at historical data. Um, I've gotten a lot of requests for that. Um, obviously, as you look over a week and a month, you might start to notice patterns which could influence your decision of using different regions. I want to retire all the Node.js code and migrate to Python. Um, there's a couple of performance improvements on the API I want to do as well, kind of refactor it, make it a little bit more user-friendly. I'm working on a, a uh, roadmap on the GitHub page using the issues functionality where I can start uh, to list all this stuff out. So nice. definitely am open to pull requests, contributions of code, whether it's fixing current functionality or working on some of this newer stuff. Totally open to that. Love the help. Obviously, you know, it's hard to run a side project at times when you're doing a full-time job, but definitely am totally open. Since you've been gathering a lot of data here, have you noticed any trends or anything that surprised you as you took latency measurements between the different regions and zones? Everything was mostly to be expected. You know, as I started to look at the data, I'll be honest with you, I have not graphed a lot of this data out as I plan to do in terms of like, what is the pattern over a week or a month? Or, you know, what, what is the uh, distribution of the different averages look like? I thought for me, just being able to see, you know, you know, Brazil is far away from Australia, but until you actually see the different connections it's trying to make, 
to the Asia Pacific re regions and what the latency is there. It's just interesting to kind of see that. And that was eye opening for me to start. And now I hope to take that further with some of the graphs and UI enhancements. I really like Matt's description of being order takers for siloed IT groups and, and really shining a spotlight on that being the main blogger holding them back. You know, they're just not focused on the why behind the stack. And really it's just, hey, how can we work together in an agile method? I, I know, agile, woo, but really, I've been working in that method for quite some time. I am pro-agile. I kind of like it. There's caveats to everything. But working in that method to solve challenges together, and honestly, it works really well. And I hope folks that listen to the show kind of feel that way as they hear Matt and others talk about these silos and the benefits of busting them. What's on your mind, Ethan? Once again, we're talking along the same lines, Chris. So I focused in on what Matt was talking about. He, he mentioned converting to full stack, that the roles people have in IT, they're converting to full stack because of what's happening in cloud. Cloud is enabling this different holistic solution focus where we're thinking about the entire stack to deliver an IT solution and not like, I'm going to provision storage for you now and then I shall walk away. Storage is up, I'm done here. And, and Matt put it another way, he mentioned specialties as opposed to silos. So sure, there still might be people who are extremely deep on networking or security, but their specialties. It doesn't mean you can be ignorant of what's going on in the rest of the stack anymore. Full stack is where things are at and cloud is making it so. One of our sponsors today is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. In a nutshell, Quest takes the complex things about your Microsoft environment and makes them easier to deal with. For instance, let's say you're dealing with a move to cloud, or maybe a merger, or maybe you're doing both at once. What happens? With too much to do, you start making mistakes. You give out more permissions than you should because you got too much to deal with and sticking that user and that group and that OU wasn't the right thing to do, but it was the convenient thing and it lets you go back to writing that script to help you migrate accounts. Oh yeah, your scripts, the canned tools, some open source thing you found, you're stirring all this stuff together with a keyboard and a mouse, and it's sort of working to get the project done, kinda, as long as no one else has to use it and the CSV files are in just the right format. Ugh, it's ugly. This is where Quest software fits in. With Quest, you can migrate without end-user disruption. You can improve the migration process by using more automation and less roll your own and hope it works. And you can maintain a compliant internal security posture. No more over-permitting because you didn't have time to figure out how to do it right. Quest fits in when you're facing migration to a new SharePoint or you're migrating to a new Office 365 environment. You're consolidating AD and Exchange. You're securing Active Directory from insider threats and more. Quest has been doing this for a long time. They help manage 184 million AD accounts today, plus they've migrated over 95 million accounts and 74 million mailboxes. They have had time to get their software right, something that Gartner recognizes about Quest, listing them as the only cloud office migration tool offering all 40 features and functions key to have. By the way, Quest isn't only selling software and hoping it works out for you. They also have a support team you can reach 24 by 7 by 365. And if you just rolled your eyes because you hate vendor tech support, Quest has been recognized eight times for customer support excellence and has a 93% customer service satisfaction rating. Odds are that if you do need to call Quest support, the experience is going to be pretty good. To learn more about Quest software, your go-to for everything Microsoft, visit quest.com slash datanotspod. One more time, that's quest.com slash datanotspod. And we thank them for being a Datanauts sponsor. Okay, Matt, now that we're introduced to the world of cloudping.co, which I thought was pretty dope, let's talk about DNS. And it seems like, you know, hey, DNS, it's a solved problem. We know how it works. We know what it does. But I, I don't know. What makes DNS different? We start adding to the cloud to this mixture. Sure. So, you know, in general, traditional DNS is a manual process. It involves a lot of waiting, a lot of uh, you know, changes that need to propagate, whether it's across your environment or across the world, that model doesn't work in the cloud. Waiting in general is not a good thing in the cloud. You have updating of DNS records, testing, reverting back then if something goes wrong, TTLs that you need to wait for. This is just kind of the monolithic view of DNS. It's the old way. It's still used, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't work very well in the cloud. So 
cloud DNS, I think what makes it different is it has to be completely API driven. It needs to be continuously available and it has to be fast. You know, API driven, I think that being able to do your deployments of DNS records when you're deploying your other infrastructure is very important. Things should be updated instantly. Another facet of cloud DNS, you know, Route 53 is AWS's only service, I believe, that offers 100% availability SLA. And there's a reason for that. DNS is so important. It needs to be available because things change so fast in the cloud. And if you're looking for a service, it needs to be updated and it needs to resolve to some sort of address. So that's kind of what makes it a little bit different. You get some other benefits, which we'll go into as well. But, you know, it's the, you know, looking at traditional versus cloud, you can tell that there's there's definitely a difference in the way of doing things. Matt, explain then the issue with AWS Route 53 when you're dealing with uh, hybrid cloud environments. We're going to define hybrid cloud as we've got resources on-premises and resources in an AWS VPC or VPCs that need to communicate with one another, and, and DNS is a part of that. So set the set the challenge up for us. Sure. So... You know, Route 53, it does exist in AWS. It does have some components that are inside your network, but it's not a traditional DNS server like you might be used to with Windows DNS or Bind or Unbound. By default, you know, you can create private and public zones. You can hook up private zones to your virtual private cloud or your VPC in AWS. This then gives that Route 53 DNS server an address, which is then resolvable. You can use it, but If you create a cloud.company.com, for example, private zone in AWS, and you want to be able to access resources then from your on-premise network, that's not possible. And the reason is you can't forward requests across your VPN or direct connection through the Route 53 environment natively for that DNS zone to that resolver address. It just doesn't work. It's a limitation AWS has put in place, and and it's a well-known limitation of the way that things are natively without any other configuration. Yeah, I thought the um, the inability to access the Route 53 resolver across VPN or Direct Connect was was interesting because it's just you know the server's there and you'd kind of think if you have a, a traditional ops background, oh, it's the dot two address. Yeah, I'll just forward certain DNS requests, you know, for this subdomain or whatever up to that dot two, and it, it just doesn't work that way. Right, exactly. And, you know, that gets people, you, you spend an hour or two on that trying to figure out why doesn't this work? And then you dive into the docs and you realize, oh, this is why it's not possible. Yeah, I think I want to follow up on another point you made, which was the programmatic or API aspect. You made the point that DNS in the cloud really must be programmatic. It's You've got to update everything instantly. Well, why the Route 53 service then for that? You, you seem to feel that that's the best answer in AWS? You know, I think you can run other services in AWS for your DNS. There's certainly a, a good amount of commercial product. There's also uh, open source products like Bind or Unbound. And you can definitely run those if you want. But I think you get a couple different benefits from using Route 53. First, when you integrate an AWS service with other AWS services, you get certain benefits that aren't available from traditional third-party DNS solutions. So for example, you know, AWS provides you alias records for your different resources. So what that means is it's basically an additional integration that uh, Route 53 provides for other AWS services. So you can create, for example, a load balancer in AWS, and then you want to put you know, app.company.com to point to that load balancer. Well, traditionally, you might forward that to a C name or you'd create an A record to an IP address. What Route 53 lets you do is create an alias record, which is pointing to a record for that load balancer that AWS knows about and keeps track of. And then any changes to that underlying load balancer architecture, whether it's the IP address or the server it's on, Route 53 knows about that instantaneously. You're not waiting for things to change. And Route 53 manages that whole process for you. I don't especially have to interact with Route 53 very much. I'm not editing individual records and so on. Exactly. So that's the case for the integrations with a lot of the AWS services, right? So you have to create a record up front first. Don't get me wrong. That's still a thing. But as things change in AWS, there are certain services that eliminate the need for you to worry about managing and changing things on your side. AWS will take care of that for you. 
All you worry about is the initial hookup. And Route 53 is, well, at least for the level of service we're talking about at the moment, it is quote unquote free. Route 53 is not free. So you're paying a cost for the number of zones you have, and you're paying a cost for the number of queries you're making against each record within the zone. So there are some nuances to the pricing based on public and private zones and things like that, but it, it is not free. Okay. So, well, all right. So, so how would you respond to the people that might say, you know what, screw this Route 53 thing. I'm an old school ops person. I like my DNS servers that I can control. I know bind from way back in the day or Windows AD, let's say, and I just would rather do that. You really feel that's a bad idea, eh? Yeah. So I think for a few reasons, it's not a great idea. So first of all, you know, we already talked about this with bind and custom logic to manage for forwarding and things like that. You know, you're basically adding on another server. It's not a huge lift to manage bind or unbound. It sounds like you're familiar with that. So, so obviously, uh, you know, we, we know that to be true, but at the same time, having one more server means more patching, more upgrading, more monitoring, more undifferentiated heavy lifting, as AWS calls it. <sighs> DNS is something I think that should be a core foundational offering from a cloud provider. I think that just makes sense. It makes it easier. You expect certain levels of networking and foundations to be there. And I think DNS that works natively with their tools, but also allows you to kind of bridge the hybrid gap is really important. Yeah, you just said something really important there because most of us that come from the traditional ops are having to unlearn and relearn how to do things right in cloud. And using that cloud native service that's tightly integrated with the rest of the offering makes so much sense. But when you know what you know, and and I am literally an old school bind person from way back in the day, I was a host master at an ISP for a while and got to know bind comp files really, really well and extremely comfortable with how DNS worked. And that's not the right way to do it in cloud. 15 years later, you know, things have moved on a bit. So it's it's good for you to emphasize that stuff. Yeah, exactly. One other benefit I want to mention here, one other reason that I think, you know, it's a bad idea to use some of these other tools is the AWS integration goes even deeper than alias records, right? So uh, if you look at an example, uh, AWS's Elastic File System or EFS is their managed NFS service. And so when you want to mount that storage onto an EC2 instance in the cloud, AWS gives you a single endpoint for that. So it's, you know, fs.sumid.amazonaws.com. When you try and resolve that inside of your VPC or your virtual private cloud, AWS takes that request in Route 53, and because it's all integrated, it knows what availability zone your machine is in, and it will route you to the closest NFS server that's part of your cluster. It does that all for you behind the scenes. Whereas if you try and resolve this address from on-prem over your direct connect, something like that, it's not going to resolve to any address. So it's, again, these deep integrations with a lot of the services that AWS offers that really makes it a benefit as well. I think both of you have highlighted kind of a thing here that maybe we should go into more detail on. And is, you know, kind of how does Route 53 work by default? And, you know, definitely highlight some areas where it differs from what we might be more used to from a DNS perspective. You know, Route 53 has traditional uh, concepts, public zones, private zones. So your public zone is a zone that's accessible from the public internet for resolution. Um, You can basically create whatever you want, but it's not going to be used for your records if you don't update the name servers on the side of the actual domain registrar. Obviously, that's important. You could register something like yahoo.com. You wouldn't necessarily want the name servers pointing to that. So public zones can be whatever you want. Those are for external public-facing services. Then you have private zones, which private zones are created inside of a VPC in AWS. So what that means is You create a private zone, you want to manage your private DNS records, and you attach that to your VPC or your network in AWS. So as part of connecting your private zone to your VPC, you get the benefit then of resolving the names in that zone automatically. So let me go into a little bit on the VPC part, and then we'll come back to that. So when you create a VPC uh, with DNS resolution enabled, uh, you get a plus two IP address, as they call it, or the resolver IP address, which is essentially a internal AWS-only address um, that we talked about previously. It's the one you can't route to over your VPN. This is where all your machines point to by default for DNS. There's a concept of 
DHCP option sets, which is associated with your VPC when you start up. So that basically says, point to these domain servers. It lets you set NetBIOS, but it also lets you set the suffix uh, to look at and add to your resolve.conf on Linux, for example. The default suffix that's configured is ec2.internal. And so this is a AWS provided zone. So you can do uh, you can do lookups against this. You can, um, you know, address your machines inside your VPC at these .ec2.internal addresses. So obviously that's a little cumbersome though, because not every company wants to be referring to things at .ec2.internal. So that's where private zones come in. You can create something more custom, like cloud.company.com. You can attach to your VPC. And then as long as your machines and your VPC points to that Route 53 address, they can also resolve addresses for that uh, cloud.company.com zone. I didn't hear you mention reverse uh, DNS zones, like the inadder.arpa zones. Is that handled by Route 53 as well? So it's partially handled for you. So if you're using the traditional ec2.internal addresses, you can look up an IP address and it will return to you the address that AWS provides for you. So that's offered by default. If you want it to resolve to your private zone, you need to create your own reverse zones and you need to manage that yourself. It's definitely one of the kind of downsides or limitations to, to this is if you do use a private zone, cloud.company.com, you're going to need another private zone to handle reverse lookups to get those same addresses back. Uh, okay. Another challenge here is the one we described earlier in this section where we mentioned the inaccessibility of that .2 name server. I can't get to it from inside my data center across a VPN or across a direct connect. It's not going to respond to me. And yet, that Route 53 service has uh, IP to hostname mappings that I, I need to query it. H how would I have gotten around this back in the day? Were, were there some typical designs that people would put into place so that they could get answers from that Route 53 from inside their data center? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple different ways to get around the limitations. So uh, the first way and a very traditional ops approach to this problem is well, just set your DNS servers in AWS on all your machines to point back to on-prem DNS servers. So whether that's Windows DNS or you have a bind server on-prem, just set the IP addresses for your DNS servers to point back on-prem. That means every resolution request is going to have to go over your VPN or your direct connect. And you really lose all the benefits of Route 53 at that point, right? You're completely reliant on that connection being up and stable, and you're completely reliant then on all the services on-prem also being up and stable. So do you have HA configured, things like that, right? You might have a bunch of services spin up in the cloud that would overwhelm that system. So that's one of the ways. I mean, you still have DNS caching on your side, but that's, uh, yeah, on the whole, it's not the best design, right? Right, right, exactly. And then the other way that people approach it is a little bit more of a hybrid approach, right? So you run uh, on a traditional VM, bind, unbound, Windows DNS, uh, Microsoft Directory Service supports this as well. Again, it's not a bad option, meaning, it, you know, it works. It's not necessarily a terrible idea. It's not a lot of overhead to manage, but it does give you an additional server or two to manage. There's a lot of overhead you need to worry about, and it's not as easy as just having Route 53 by itself. All of that stinks. I'm sitting here kind of wrinkling my nose going, eh, I wouldn't really want to do that. But we're going to get into some new options that AWS has given us, but for a long time, that were that was a typical workaround uh, scenario or scenarios. And I wanted to raise that because there's people that are running Route 53 right now, and they've got this workaround with additional servers in place uh, pointing here and there and everywhere just so that you can do the different calls you need to do to get the name resolution you're looking for. There's a better answer that's, uh, exactly. that's coming now that we're, that we're getting on to. But before we get to that, Chris, you got one more question, right? Yeah, I was thinking about the the weird behaviors and all the caveats you were talking about with um, Route 53 and just really AWS DNS in general. Is this specific to Amazon? Do Azure and GCP also have caveats or, I guess, quote-unquote, weird behaviors I have to worry about? Yeah, so GCP has a beta offering, which does take care of all of this functionality right now. You know, it was launched in October 2018, so it, it was a lot later in the game than the others. 
So basically, VMs inside of a Google VPC, they can be pointed to an internal GCP address for DNS, similar to AWS. You can create private zones and manage those. The forwarding uh, part is the key, though, right? The forwarding between on-prem and um, your AWS or your GCP network would be really important, right? So you can handle both of those cases in GCP natively. They have inbound forwarding using DNS policies. They have outbound forwarding using forwarding zones, and that's all available to be created within the GCP platform. No extra servers. Again, it's in beta, though, so there's no SLA. There's no guarantee that they won't deprecate it, of course. So you're taking a risk there using it in production, but the functionality does exist. And if you, you know, if you make an assumption, it's going to be at some point coming live and ready for production use. Isn't Gmail still in beta? I don't know. Did they ever graduate (laughs) that? I forget. It's 15 years old now, man. (laughs) It is. Yeah. Happy birthday. And then Azure. So Azure has a preview offering also for for this, and it's very limited in terms of what it can do. So Azure, you know, you can link private zones to your different virtual networks or VNets as they're called. There's no conditional forwarding capabilities currently, so you need to maintain that additional infrastructure. You do get an internal address for DNS to use in your VNet. You get different internal names to use for resolution. So you can have internal.cloudapp.net if you're using Azure DNS resolution. If you're completely ignoring Azure DNS, they'll give you another uh, suffix that you can use. But again, this is in preview. It looks like first half of 2018 it was launched, so there's no SLA around this. Hopefully, this private DNS is only going to get better on Azure. You know, you would hope this is almost a year old in preview. They're thinking about bringing it to production, maybe adding some of that conditional forwarding capability as well. I really grabbed a hold of what Matt was saying about um, DNS that is API driven. And he was really insistent that it, it, you, you've just got to do things this way. DNS is got to be cloud native. We're not trying to replicate traditional ops in the cloud. Lift and shift is broken thinking. And therefore what AWS Route 53 is, it's kind of the ultimate dynamic DNS back in the day when we were first introduced to dynamic DNS. Oh my gosh, hosts registering themselves by hand, I'm scared. No, it's th- now we've evolved way beyond that even. A DNS, a- it's API driven and fully automated is how you do it when you're doing it right. What was on your mind, Chris? And you're bringing back memories of Dyn DNS and paying for that to keep my <laughs> my floating weird cable modem IP tracked. But at, at, at any rate, no, I, I think the amount of DNS related services that live within the AWS fabric and regions and even down to the AZ, it, it's actually quite intriguing. I had no idea that it went so deep. And I can definitely see why such a topic would be a challenge because it's hey, well-known things. I, I know DNS. I'm a tech professional. I can handle these things. I know A records and quad A's and that kind of jazz. And then had that deer in the headlights moment where it's like, oh, man, what uh, what's going on in this cloud environment? It's kind of different. It's not just hosted DNS or DNS as a service. It's got way more than that. And so I, I liked that Matt really went into the guts and, as he said, the nooks and crannies of what's going on under the covers. Let's take a break from our show to talk about Open Systems, one of our sponsors here on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. Open Systems provides secure SD-WAN to the world. That means your company can grow globally without having to choose among security, scale, or simplicity. Open Systems wants you to have it all and to save money over traditional WAN vendors who don't care about you while you do it. Imagine that. Give money back to the business so that they can grow. Reduce that global WAN budget line item and at the same time, build a WAN that doesn't suck with a vendor that wants you to succeed. With Open Systems, you get their integration of best of breed SD-WAN with security. Open Systems describes this as embedded security at every layer of your network, edge to edge. At the same time, it's easy to operate their SD-WAN through automation that even has a bit of artificial intelligence helping out. And if AI doesn't impress you, well, hey, you get access to humans, too. That's right, real people that can help make your WAN as good as it can be. On the front end, you can partner with Open Systems SD-WAN experts to design, architect, and even manage your wide area network. And on the back end, network and security engineers follow the sun to help resolve issues quickly in more than 180 countries. Open Systems delivers the visibility, flexibility, and control you really want with the performance, simplicity, and security you absolutely need in your network. 
Request a free assessment by going to their website at www.open-systems.com slash packet pushers. There, you can request a stylish Open Systems beanie and download a Gartner report on the economics of SD-WAN. Open Systems, the network for growth, zero compromise. www.open-systems.com slash packet pushers. And now back to our show. Well, Matt, we set up a the problem, you know, why it is a challenge to actually get DNS requests into and out of AWS to make our hybrid cloud environment work the way we want to. Now, in November 2018, AWS announced some new features, inbound and outbound endpoints. Can you talk us through inbound and outbound endpoints, what this adds to Route 53 and what we can do with it? Sure. So, uh, like you said, in November 2018, AWS released the Route 53 Resolver service, which essentially bridges the gap between your on-prem environment and your AWS environment in terms of DNS. So there's two different components to this. So the inbound endpoint, as they're called, basically allows you to do inbound queries from your on-prem environments to AWS hosted domains. So as you create private hosted zones in Route 53 for things that are hosted in AWS, you can now point your DNS servers towards these inbound forwarders or these inbound endpoints and resolve addresses inside of AWS using Route 53. So it's still not the .2 address, so uh, that's still not accessible. But if you remember how that worked and how it didn't work over the link, this now bridges that gap. It basically gives you multiple new IP addresses, assuming you set up two inbound uh, endpoints for high availability to now route your traffic over your network, over your direct connect into AWS. Then there's the outbound endpoints. So the outbound endpoints basically allow you to then forward DNS requests for zones hosted on-premise back to another server on-prem. So if you have maybe uh, contoso.com on-premise, you know you can create an outbound endpoint, maybe two for high availability, then you create forwarding rules in your Route 53 resolver to say, okay, anyone that is requesting contoso.com, go over the VPN, go over the direct connect, the zone is on-prem. This basically helps to bridge that gap, again, removes the need for bind or unbound or any of those other services. One of the other cool things about this is uh, you can share rules across your accounts. So AWS has a fairly new service called Resource Access Manager or RAM. Basically what it does is it allows you to create your endpoints in a shared services account, for example, and then share those rules and those endpoints across all of your other AWS accounts. And so what that does then, you know, all your EC2 instances, they can still point to the in-VPC resolver, but because you've shared these outbound endpoints and these inbound endpoints, they can now also leverage DNS resolution through these endpoints, therefore reducing the cost. It feels closer to traditional DNS with a delegated zone where you would just say, yeah, the name server that's authoritative for this subdomain lives here. Go ask go ask that server if you've got a question about it. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking, thinking the same thing. It's kind of like taking something that offers a lot of interesting services and, and honestly sounds like it's very valuable when you're inside their environment and assuaging some of the concerns or caveats that you're running into that are like, oh, I can't quite use this like I want. Uh, but but then there's there's always the AWS question, right? So inbound and outbound endpoints, great. But I'm sure there's a fee of some sort to use this. You know, can you break it down? You know, what is the cost and and, and kind of some ideas around the cost and and how you don't get screwed? Because I'm definitely thinking if someone somehow got a hold of this, they could run up your bill. I, I don't know how how crazy is this and what can people do to you as well? Yeah. So uh, the the cost breaks down basically into two different components. So the first cost is the cost of the actual endpoints. So essentially what the endpoints are, um, they're creating an elastic network interface inside of your virtual private cloud. And so these are uh, 12.5 cents per hour, um, which can get pretty steep as you start to spin up more and more of them. So this is another reason why sharing across multiple accounts is a really great idea. If you consider, though, you want two inbound endpoints for HA and you want two outbound endpoints for HA, um, you know, figure maybe 730 hours in the month that those are up and running. You know, that's $365 a month for just those four endpoints. That can get a little bit steep as you start to add more endpoints across different VPCs or accounts if that's the direction you want to go. And for people that want to do the comparison against 
either a Windows EC2 instance hosting Windows DNS or a Linux EC2 instance that's maybe hosting bind or unbound, this is a lot more expensive than that. That's just the way that it is right now. So you have to keep in mind some of those other benefits, which we'll kind of get into a little bit more. You know, why would you use this versus other solutions? The other part of this is the cost for queries against your endpoints. So you have 40 cents per million queries up to 1 billion queries. So if you're going to query your DNS endpoints a billion times, your, your first billion queries are going to be 40 cents per million. Um, above that, it's going to be 20 cents per billion. Uh, because of this, you know, for your outbound endpoints, it's definitely important to make sure you're using the built-in DNS resolver for your VPC, so the plus two address. Um, you don't want your EC2 instances pointing at these outbound endpoint addresses, right? These are only for forwarding through your Route 53 resolver. Don't point things directly at them because that's going to double up your query cost. Again, you definitely want to be using the plus two address because you'll get all the benefits of this in terms of cost uh, optimization. It's already configured and it's free to use the resolver attached to the EC2 instances by default, right? It's free in terms of you don't have to change anything on your side and it's free in terms of, you know, you're not paying double the query cost for hitting these endpoints, right? You're just paying for the one-time cost. So Matt, I'm listening to you describe this and I'm hearing the costs. Okay, the functionality is great. The costs make me go, hmm, I'm not sure. Let's say I've already got my workaround solution in place that I put in place before AWS ever introduced inbound and outbound endpoints. What's motivating me to change and go AWS native on this stuff as opposed to just leaving my workaround in place? Right. So I think it goes back to some of the benefits, you know, we had talked about previously. So again, if you're going to do a pure cost comparison, yes, this is going to be more expensive, but you have to look at the other side of it, right? So less servers to manage. You're not worrying about extra software that needs to be configured. So, you know, you want to install Bind or Unbound or Windows DNS at scale, uh, you need to configure that. So now you maybe have another puppet module to write or or, or more uh, Ansible code to configure or something like that. In addition to now the extra EC2 instances. Going back to the undifferentiated heavy lifting. Exactly, exactly. The other benefit that you lose out on by using another solution instead of this one, you know, it uses your normal infrastructure as code process that you're probably already using in AWS, right? So whether you're leveraging Terraform or CloudFormation or another service that allows you to deploy your infrastructure based on some sort of declarative code that's written out, it uses that same process. So these Route 53 records that you're creating now are just another API call to AWS. It's not now, well, let me go and figure out how do I add this to Windows DNS or how do I you know, add this into bind and update that configuration and maybe restart the service, right? You're not worrying about any of that. It's just another step in your build process. And of course, it's less ops time really to spend worrying about recursive DNS resolution issues and things like that. Yeah, so the reasons I would want to change that, I could summarize it as, as ops. My ops world gets better if I go this route. There is a caveat of cost, but how much of a cost differential we're dealing with is going to depend a lot on your query volume. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's going to depend on your query volume. It's also going to depend on your architecture for your DNS environment, right? So as you, you know, if you decide you don't want to necessarily share these endpoints across all of your accounts, this cost is going to keep going up. One thing I do want to add, though, is that the cached DNS requests are free in Route 53. So essentially, once something hits the resolver uh, endpoint for the first time, you're not necessarily going to pay to resolve that same request again. So that can help alleviate some of the uh, costs you might get from that aspect. But the endpoint cost is still going to be there no matter what. Yeah, yeah. particularly if you can go with a longer time to live because maybe your infrastructure right. doesn't change all that much so you can cache records for a long time. That's uh, right. be a big benefit. And that makes sense because some services are constantly floating around, ephemeral, state comes up and down. Now, some yes. are just like, hey, I, I do things, I'm here. Yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. You'll always have those types of services where you can benefit from the longer TTLs and things like that. Or at least you hope so. <laughs> <laughs> knock, knock on something. Knock on a cloudy piece of wood. 
So Matt, is there a scenario where I would not make this change where you, that you can think of it just, nah, this wouldn't make sense. Do what you're doing and you don't need to switch over to using inbound and outbound endpoints. If you're really obsessed with the inner workings of DNS resolution and you really enjoy complexity, I think that definitely you shouldn't use this solution. Overall, I think the real problem with the solution is going to be cost for a lot of people, honestly. That's where I would recommend if you really feel like you can't afford the lift here and you know your Windows DNS is humming along fine or you have an unbound server you haven't touched in five years and it doesn't need to be patched for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's not worth the cost to you. But that's really one of the only reasons I can think of where you wouldn't want to use this solution, right? AWS did a great job making this on your private network. It goes and integrates with all your other services. So there's not, you know, some of the new AWS services, you have to maybe worry about compliance regulations. Is this actually a public endpoint? Things like that, right? This one is done the right way. And I think that it really comes down to, is this too expensive? Can I make the case for why we go to this from a ops perspective, not only just the endpoint cost, but making sure that you can convince based on, you know, the changes to the ops hours that may be required. Well, Matt, I uh, really appreciate the time you took to come and chat with us today on Data Knots. This all happened because I found an article of yours on uh, Medium. I don't know. I think I found it through a nut, yet another newsletter that I got uh, linked me to this, how to do hybrid DNS for the enterprise and AWS. And then the update article you wrote later uh, covering the Route 53 resolver features, giving us these inbound and outbound endpoints. And uh, and then I found your blog, and then I found your Twitter account. And uh, it's just great to meet you, man. I really appreciate it. Would you, uh, would you let folks know how they can follow you? Anything you'd like to share? Sure. So uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, MDA590. So feel free to follow me there. Usually I post anything I'm working on on Twitter, maybe uh, even if it's an in progress or asking a question or something. So that's a good way to keep up with kind of what I'm working on. And then my site is just matt.adorgen.co. Um, and there I'll post all my final, uh, you know, whether it's a final blog post or something I post on Medium, other interesting tidbits that I find. Um, so definitely check me out there as well. Matt.adorgen.co. And then your Twitter is MDA590. What is that? Initials and month of birth or something yeah. like that? Yes, exactly. Got it. Oh, yes. All right. Thanks to all of you for listening. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach me at EC Banks on Twitter. My blog is EthanCBanks.com. Chris is at Chris Wall, and his blog is WallNetwork.com. And we, Data Knots, interview folks from all over the IT industry who are trying to do things better, breaking down silos, pushing the design envelope, creating new tech, sharing with community, learning, unlearning, improving asking hard questions. We talk to them as they explore the IT universe, taking us places that we haven't all been yet. And until then, may your server lights blink, your name servers resolve correctly, and your cables be clearly managed. Mm-hmm.